Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Diva Behavior, the podcast. I am your host, Molly Mulshine, as always, and this week, we are doing something that we very rarely do. We're talking about a straight male diva. We're talking about Axl Rose, the lead singer of Guns N' Roses and the only remaining member of Guns N' Roses after he decided to kick his entire band out of the band and replace them with total randos. Axl Rose you know, because he's a man, he's never been called a diva, but the things that he's done, if a woman did them, not only would she be called a diva, she would probably be absolutely, you know, crucified by the press and the general public. And Axel Rose does, he did deal with a lot of bad press, but I don't think it was anything on the level of what a woman would have to deal with if she kept crowds waiting for two hours before performing, for example, or if a woman kicked out her entire band and proclaimed that she was now the band. I, I don't think women usually get away with that in the same way that he has. And the story of Axl Rose you know, it's not all fun and games. There's a lot of really depressing parts. There's a lot of really problematic parts. I mean, I haven't felt this level of antipathy toward a diva behavior topic since maybe Sarah Ferguson, (laughs) which is saying a lot. But it's an interesting conversation nonetheless. I mean, partially because of the timing. We get into it in the episode, but Axl Rose and Donald Trump have a lot in common interestingly enough I think right now is as good a time as any I mean it's always a good time to talk about toxic masculinity I think this past week it's been even more top of mind than usual which is saying something because it's been pretty top of mind for the past four years and it's also an interesting conversation because of my guest my guest this week is Matt Haas he is a comedian and a music enthusiast. He has his own podcast called Castable, where he invites guests to cast their own dream version of a music festival, like come up with your dream lineup and everything. And I've been trying to think of what mine would be, and I honestly have no idea. Like, h- how do you even start? I know that Cher and Barbara Streisand would probably do a duet, but that's as far as I've gotten. So follow Matt Haas on all social platforms. His last name is H-O-S-S. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly Molshine. Rate and review this podcast. Send it to someone who you think would like it. You know, go crazy and enjoy us talking about Axl Rose. Some people think Diva is a diva to you. Would you say, are you one? I never said that. Diva behavior. Great, uh, great gowns, beautiful gowns. Of course, I don't trust you. Diva Behavior, the podcast. Well, Matt, let's get to it. What made you want to talk about Axl Rose, this curveball guest that I never would have thought of in a million years? <laughs> I mean, not guest, you know what I mean? You're the guest, but. Well, I just, you know, with Axl Rose, I, well, I was asked to do this podcast and uh, I was asked about 
divas and the first diva that popped in my head uh, and I'm from I love rock I really love metal I spent my whole uh, teenage years being surrounded by rock and the ideas of uh, uh, like yeah like lots of uh, metal festivals like Download and Sonosphere I spent I grew I grew up around them and that that was my tribe at that time and uh, and the first person that came to my mind out of many many candidates uh, and was Axl Rose and I think Axl Rose uh, it I, I've loved Guns N' Roses for such a long time. I got to see them, the reunited uh, group in 2018 at Download, which was uh, phenomenal. But it, I, I think Axl Rose is such a unique and interesting person because he's, uh, he's both, like, I think he, he's, he's quite disastrous. He's quite horrible, uh, but also he has some redemptive features as well. There's a, and like, um, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about all of it, but it's, I think he's such an interesting person. And uh, in terms of a diva, he really ticks all the boxes as well. So I think yeah. he's, he's, uh, he's an interesting one. A curveball, as you say, but I think it's uh, uh, a one definitely worth talking about. For sure. sure. He really does tick all the diva boxes. He would keep, I didn't know any of this stuff until I started researching for this episode. He would keep his audiences waiting for up to two hours. Oh my God. Like arena shows. This wasn't like (laughs) a club show. He (laughs) went into seclusion for about 10 years trying to work on an album. He decided that Guns N' Roses was going to be his band from now on and no one else had a claim to it even though they all started it together he really is if he was a woman he would be considered diva of the century Mm -hmm. because he is a male rock star it's just like well he's a rock star and uh, yeah and like it's i just with uh, I, i couldn't agree more and i think he he, he doesn't get labeled as a diva necessarily, but he definitely is a diva. I'm, I'm not sure if you have a diva tick box you have to go off, like a, like a diva detec- detection program, but I do feel that Axel ticks all the boxes. And like, uh, yeah, I, I, and, but also like if anyone's, uh, wants to uh, research it, it like the, the amount of crazy things just type in axel mo uh, axel rose worst moments and there's so <laughs> many like, yeah. like i've literally i mean uh, this is the uh, i love doing research for this podcast because I, I literally have nine pages of just atrocities and the worst thing is axel rose with cornrows worst thing in the world oh yeah i know <laughs> i so when you were growing up with his music were you aware of the sort of darker sides of him so i think this is a really good question uh, and i i th- think when you're a teenager you don't quite to see i don't think you get to see the full remit of people uh, obviously with some people you do uh, but i also think with well i think this is uh, it's a really good conversation about toxic masculinity because i feel that like Guns N' Roses, my favorite album uh, and probably the best debut album of all time is Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses. It's, yeah, uh, bop uh, after bop. Yeah, absolutely. But when I listened to it as a teenager, I must have been about 13, and I used I remember listening to it in my brother's bedroom because he had a CD player in there. And uh, uh, there's a song called After After Sweet Child of Mine called uh, uh, You're Crazy, and I loved it because it, it had a curse word in it. It goes, you're so <laughs> crazy. And uh, and uh, I thought, oh, cool. And But looking back at that, it, uh, and especially during research for this, it's kind of dulled my love of Guns N' Roses because it, it, like, there's a lot of things wrong with it as well. There's a, and not just small things. There are some major problematic things in, in their music, which I wasn't aware of as I growing up, but it's also quite hard because I've, I've loved them for so long that it's quite difficult to 
to detach the love from it as well. It's um, right. it's like it's about it's like learning like one of your friends is really like a yeah is a is like a massive bigot. If you know what I mean? It's like oh, I didn't, yeah. ex- didn't but obviously, but in the same vein, you're not surprised because <laughs> all the things that you've liked about them when you were younger kind of points to reasons why like they did. I liked it because they were they had that look like that amazing harsh sound, and I thought. But also in the same time that yeah, it's it's uh, it came from a quite a dark place, I guess. Right. So I think something really interesting to look at is on the topic of vulgarity and profanity in their music is the way that the different band members have reacted in recent years to their song One in a Million. Yes. And that song had every racial slur, homophobic <laughs> yeah. epithet. It was just like terrible. And yeah, yeah. so Obviously, we're all for free expression. We're both stand-up comics. But this, mm-hmm. so w- when they talk about this song now, Slash and Duff McKagan both have said, oh, it, we didn't mean it. We were occupying, we were telling it from the perspective of a racist, terrible person. Also, Slash is mm-hmm. biracial. He has his, uh, mm-hmm. one of his parents is black. Mm-hmm. And then Axel Rose defends it by saying, well, I've met a lot of gay people that I didn't like that, that like gayness on me. And it's like, okay, you guys need to get your story straight because Uh, it's just like, I don't know. And, and they, and they did take it off of their 2018 box set, which I think is great because like they are so rock and roll. And even they said, you know what? There's no need for this. We don't need yeah. to put song out. And apparently <laughs> Axel was the only one who really wanted to put it out. The other guys oh, never were crazy about it. So did you hear that song when you were younger? Uh, well, actually I didn't hear that song because it was on. Um, so yeah, One in a Million is really, uh, it's an odd track because it's the last song of the second album, uh, GNR Lies, which uh, it's like, a, it was a weird album even for Guns N' Roses because it's an acoustic album it felt quite out of place. It's a very odd second album to have because I had some covers from the first one and a lot of new stuff. Uh, and then they had this thing at the end. And yeah, as you mentioned, it's it's like, uh, it's a really horrendous song and probably the worst thing which Axel probably has done, I would say. Yeah. And, uh, but beyond that though, I kind of feel that like if, uh, fair play to it if you're gonna be racist it, it takes all the bigot boxes though it's like, it doesn't just do one bigot thing it does everything right. <laughs> well, like like duff and slash's explanation for it is plausible because it's so over the top terrible mm-hmm. that you're like yeah this can't just be someone's perspective in real life but also i i don't think it's uh yeah i i think it's born out of them i think actually uh I don't know. I think at the time, Guns N' Roses were... I remember reading an article a long time ago in Classic Rock magazine. It's an article with Slash and the rest of the band members about how they made Appetite for Destruction. And were, and they were like, there's like it's like a one... Like a, I was going to say one in a million, but not not, not that one kind of one in a million. Uh, but it's a, it's a very small chance that the band actually made it because the amount of hard drugs they were doing. And and I'm not mean like they did a little bit of so-and-so. They, they did everything every single day. It was mm-hmm. messy. It was gross. The kind of things they got up to were really deranged and uh, quite disturbing, actually, and uh, and that's how they made a lot of the music. So the fact they managed to a put together an album, b make it sound good, and then do world tours off that, that I can understand why 
I don't defend their behavior, but I can see why they are doing problematic stuff because they are, their heads aren't in the right space. You know what I mean? Right. They are, um, but that's again, not an excuse. And also it kind of makes sense that, and yeah, one in a million is kind of weird for that way. Cause it's, it's weird. Cause it starts off as like a love song saying, Oh yeah, you're one in a million. And then it just slips into this kind of racist and homophobic terrain. It's like, hmm, I'm not sure. Like, where did that come from? It's kind Very of like, it's like like going for Christmas dinner around your uh, like parents, family, and then you have a nice chat, and then oh, that's a racism. Yeah, you know I mean, like yeah. it just like it just drops in very slowly, and it's it, yeah, it's really so odd. Part of I think maybe part of what that was born out of might have been a reaction to you know in the eighties, in the late eighties, Nancy Reagan was doing her whole censorship of music thing. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of musicians were wanting to just take things as far as humanly possible just as a reaction to that, which obviously is not an excuse, but it sort of explains why they would let that terrible song slip through. And then the other thing is in researching Axel Rose, I found that the you know he Everyone says he's a really complex person. The thing that pops up again and again is that he has this chip on his shoulder. And I think that because, so let's talk about his childhood, his upbringing. He was raised Mm -hmm. by a man who was not his real father. He Mm -hmm. found out who his father was later in his life. His real father, his birth father was a really terrible guy. He, you know, got up to all kinds of bad stuff. And Axel later went into regressed memory therapy which is where you recover memories. It's very controversial. You recover memories Mm -hmm. that you've been repressing. Mm -hmm. And people say that a lot of the time those memories aren't real. It was a big thing in the late 80s, early 90s, and no one really does it anymore. And he recovered a memory that his father had sexually abused him. Mm -hmm. And I feel like with one in a million, with the fact that he's been accused of domestic abuse by two women... Mm-hmm. I feel like he he often turns it back on how much of a victim he is. And that's what makes him so not a sympathetic character for me because he, mm-hmm. I'm just like, okay, you were sued for domestic abuse by these two women and now magically you remember that you were also abused. And yeah. when he was talking about the racism in that song and the homophobia in that song, he's like, well, I'm a victim of the people that I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. like, oh my God, dude, get yeah. your head out of your butt. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I think that's a really good way to frame it to be fair. And I think that, um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I do. I think that, uh, he he does have a quite a an angle to be like, but what aren't I the one who should be? Some? And it, and that's what the kind of song is all about, really. It's been like, well, hey, as a white man, I I I've really got the short straw around here. You know what I mean? It's like, yes. uh, okay, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure about uh, his past and uh, if it, it, the way that you phrased it, it does sound like. To be fair, I'm quite naive and I'm quite uh, I'm yeah I'm kind of I'm one of these people that kind of takes people up. Uh, face value but as soon as you said that that makes total a lot more sense but you know maybe if, I, I do I do I work for a mental health charity in my day job but like um wow and um what my what I do see a lot with people is that the trauma they had in their uh upbringing they do have in their later on in life so they kind of repeat it if you know they get the mm-hmm. cycle of abuse uh, repeats and uh, uh so that yeah it's it, I don't it, it might not be an excuse per se but it might be the reason for that as well and uh yeah. I, 
and from my experience, uh, not personal experience, but from working with lots of people, like this, um, if you're doing really hard drugs like they were, there's a, probably a reason for it. No one does uh, uh, like class A drugs uh, or very very hard narcotics for the for a laugh. Do you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. there because it's born out of something. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I think this. It's. I had no idea you worked for a mental health charity. So this is even better that we're talking about this. So what mm-hmm. do you think would be the path forward for Axel Rose if he was to try and pursue any sort of redemption? Because I think what what his narrative has, has been so far since sort of the darker parts of him became more public, he's been really into homeopathic remedies and mm-hmm. seeing therapists out in Arizona and and things like that. So it seems like he is trying to work on himself. This is something we've also seen with Shia LaBeouf recently saying, you mm-hmm. know, I am being accused of abusing people. I was abused myself. So like you said, it, it is an explanation for that sort of behavior but mm-hmm. what's the atonement need to look like obviously we're not going to solve this problem but i would just love to hear your thoughts yeah and i think he as you say i think he's definitely started that path and i think that i think that path started by dusting that chip off his shoulder and going back to the band and re- reuniting with Guns N' Roses. I actually think that did a lot of good for him. And uh, also working, he, he covered for ACDC on vocals for a bit as well. And I think that, that um, again, like uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not exactly a cure-all, but like what happened there is that, um, as you mentioned at the very start, he is late to every single show. But for ACDC, they're like, nope, you got to cut out that crap. And uh, and it felt like a bit like a training school for him as well. He had training wheels on for a bit. And I think he's on that path. He's, and as of recently, I know he's been very vocal against Donald Trump, which is, I think, is a, I think he's slowly kind of coming back. He's coming back on track. Do you know what I mean? He's using his mm. voice for a better good. Um, he still kind of puts his foot in it and I think he's trying to be better but and I do think it just requires him more to kind of uh just take stock on his life and hopefully you know maybe I would love to see a new album from Guns N' Roses where it's their sound but maybe kind of going back because um like and kind of righting the wrong so to speak and I think that's a a, that's a good thing to do um for, for example one of my favorite songs um by Beastie Boys and Beastie Boys um in their first couple of albums, they were quite misogynistic and quite uh, abusive in their, their lyrics as well. Like, uh, And when they started off, they started off as a parody band where they were just kind of uh, like, uh, yeah, just being like, they were saying nonsense because it fit the character, but then they became the character. And mm. it was, uh, yeah, and they, they had to live by the words that they said and uh, it became very male-centric and quite grim. But then on their fourth album, uh, on the first song of that album, it's called Shoe Shot. And uh, they have uh, a whole stanza about just kind of like, you know what, we said some terrible things in the past. We're really sorry. We're, you know, it, we're not just B-boys, we're B-girls as well. We're all, we're all here as a team. And you can rewrite the past. You, and it can't, that those two stories can uh, co-align. And, but what needs to happen is to say, okay, that was me in the past. I, you know, I appreciate the music I did then, but also, you know, I've grown. You need to show growth. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can't just, uh, and I'm not sure if Axel has grown. I think he, I think he has to a degree, but there's so much, there's a lot more to go. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it's it's interesting how you bring up Trump because something that 
Guns N' Roses was known for was sort of inciting, arguably, riots at their show. Yes, shows. yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, and like, I am, um, again, there's some more research for people. Just type in Axelrod's, uh, uh, like, stage meltdowns. And there's times where he literally... It usually happens during the song Rocket Queen, and we'll come back to Rocket Queen, hopefully in the future, because that's also a controversial song. But like, what happens in Rocket Queen is a big old bridge where there's just a lot of music playing for a bit, and Axel will find someone being rude in the crowd, and he will literally, like, not... I, I say dive off stage, right? And I don't mean that, oh, he just jumped, he steps down. No, he literally launches himself like a fish into water into the crowd and starts beating people up. And it's like, that you can't do that. And yeah. as he's been arrested after tons of shows as well. And uh, yeah, it's, and there's so many times where someone's done something in the crowd and he's just literally just thrown the mic on the floor and walked away. And that's the end of the show. And that's, that's it. They're doing like a live recording. He goes, no, nah, I'm done. And just leaves. And yeah, and that's, uh, that's, true diva behavior as well it's a uh, unmitigated diva behavior and it's um yeah it's uh it's yeah he, he just he does uh he does do a lot of the trouble himself i don't think the rest of the band do it but he definitely uh he's very temperamental for sure yeah the the really interesting thing with rock music is it does sort of it was born it wasn't born out of toxic masculinity but it took on obviously from like the 1970s onward yeah this sort of machismo that, you know, sometimes it's an act. And in the Mm -hmm. case of Axl Rose, it's very real, I would say. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing also about Guns N' Roses is surprisingly for all of their debauched behavior and the drama in, in the late eighties, as early as their first album, they were already sort of self-aware about the fact that they didn't want people to take their music at face value. Like Mm -hmm. I was reading, I think a spin interview with them and they were talking to Slash and he was like, I don't want kids to think that this is real. It's not real. We're joking around. We're doing these like fake characters. And I thought that was really surprising because then, but then at the same time, they're like bragging about how many drugs they're doing and everything. Yeah. I mean, I think apart of the charm, particularly with Appetite for Destruction, there is that element of it's. I don't. I don't know. I'm not. I'm, I always get a little bit skeptical when people say that it's. It's a. Um, it's a. It, it's a joke. You know what I mean? It's like I think that's such an easy label to put on it. And it really annoys me when politicians or uh, any public figure say, "Oh, it was just a joke." It's like, well, you. It's as a stand-up comedian that was not intended as a joke. Do you know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you didn't reflect in that way. And, uh, and if it isn't clear that it's a punchline, people are going to take it the wrong way. Like, uh, and I don't know, I just kind of feel that it's an easy defense, uh, but also at the same time, you know, like I can kind of see that appetite destruction. It is very big. It's very um, grim, but, uh, but also I, I actually think that, appetite destruction does reflect their lives no a lot of the lyrics were born from their real lives and a lot of the lyrics they they put into their work happen from their real life for example uh, my michelle that's a, a real life story about um like uh, this girl who went through like uh, a lot of hardships and ended up uh, uh, doing drugs and uh, like uh, like kind of wasting her life away and uh, and also more innocuously there's stuff like uh, when Axel and Ben went to New York uh, and uh, there, there's this man this old elderly man just shouting welcome to the jungle you're gonna die 
why? And they and then they put that into the lyrics. And the same with um, "Sweet uh, Child of Mine," where uh, they were in in the they were in the recording booth, and they go like, uh, you know, this song is good, but it just needs one. It just needs a little bit more over the after the solo. And Axel was like, oh, where do we go now, hey? Where do we go now? And I go, well, we put that in. He goes, wow. where do we go now? So that's, I, so I do think that the, I'm not saying it is their real life, but it's certainly real life things did make their music. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And also the other thing is if you look up the, pap- the court filings of Erin Everly when she yes. sued him for domestic abuse, it does seem like a lot of the terrible things he's said about women were kind of literal. So it's yeah. Like... And, and like, and also on top of that, like uh, he, um, there's a lot of songs which he wrote about women. And, uh, but I, well, let, let me use this thing, for example. He, um, he did a song called uh, Next Door, Right Next Door to Hell on Use Your Illusion One. And uh, yeah, a lot of the songs off that album, like real life things, like uh, uh, it's like, Basically, he's saying in that song, "Oh, I live next door to a psycho," but he literally threw wine bottles at this at the neighbor. So I think, ironically, he's writing it about himself. If you know what I mean, like he is the hell, but he oh, doesn't yeah. realize that. And there's also there's another song on "Use Your Illusion" where he's basically having a go at the press. He was having a go at him. So it is all born from real life stuff. You know, it's it's stuff which is a. Uh, his like yeah his his real life yeah he had a very antagonistic relationship with the press which i don't appreciate in a celebrity he <laughs> he wanted to have every member of press of the press who covered one of their tours sign a waiver saying that guns and roses got to approve what they wrote before it was published oh really yeah, yeah it's absurd yeah. You know, like between that and the riots, it's re- it is funny that he has the gall to now call out Donald Trump. It's like, yeah, absolutely, you know, like yeah. the literal exact same things as him. Like that really bothers me when people are like that with the press. And but so he reminds me. There's a lot of famous divas who he does remind me of. And mm-hmm. with the press stuff this week, seeing have you been following everything with Lana Del Rey this week? I haven't actually. Um, could you? So she. Yeah. She is very antagonistic towards the press. And I say that as a fan of her music. She often targets journalists on Twitter, which is not so innocuous when you have a gigantic Stan army that's ready to do your bidding. Like she has millions of people who literally have fan accounts dedicated to her. And when she says this journalist is bad, they harass that person. So it's happened before and it happened this week because she gave an interview with BBC One and she said, you know, I don't think Donald Trump realized he was inciting a riot. I think he's just that crazy of a person. She didn't say crazy. She said he's such a narcissist that to him, it didn't seem like he was inciting violence. So someone at Complex reported what she said. And the headline was like, Lana Del Rey doesn't think Trump meant to incite riot, which is what she said. And she flipped out on Twitter and she posted this long video to Instagram where she talks about how much she dislikes the press and she sort of threatens complex. And she's like, I thought we had a good relationship. Like I've given you exclusives in the past. And she's sort of implying that she's not going to give them exclusives anymore. And it's just, I don't know. It, it reminded me of Axel Rose sitting and saying, you're not allowed to publish anything that I haven't approved. Yeah. And there is definitely a control complex uh, as well. Like uh, he, he regularly would do stuff, inappropriate stuff on those tours. Not necessarily, like, 
I mean, he would literally do band ad- admin on stage. So he would call out other people on stage. Uh, if, for example, with Slash, uh, like he was like, oh, well, you know, I think we need to get rid of the real life Mr. Brownstone, a, a song about um, heroin abuse. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and he's like, oh, you guys are doing too many drugs. And he's having to go with the rest of the band in front of a live show. And that's so, like, that's so crazy. Imagine like, that's such like poor, it's unprofessional and just kind of like, that's demon behavior as well. Like that's, it's very, uh, yeah. It, you, I don't think you know what you're going to get with that. So on every night of the tour. Yeah. I think maybe when you're a musician and you're so good at writing songs, you st- and, and you are heavily financially awarded for it and mm-hmm. vast, vast amounts of people are worshiping you. You probably start to have no patience for anyone around you having autonomy in a way mm-hmm. that you don't <laughs> agree with. And I guess mm-hmm. that's unfortunate. Like people, you need some no people around to tell you that you can't be that way. But yeah. I love it. I mean, I don't love, I guess it's funny how he would be late for his shows all the time. And he mm-hmm. would talk about it in interviews and he would not apologize for it. And there was one interview with Rolling Stone where he said, if people don't want to stay late, if they have to, if they have to work in the morning, they shouldn't come to my shows. <laughs> it's just so unreasonable isn't it it's kind of like uh yeah it's uh i I just i find people who think like that such uh so that they have such a lack of perception about how other people live their lives it's kind of like uh today um I'm not sure if we'd like to say the political, so feel free to edit it this uh, edit this out. But like, uh, uh, there's like a Tory MP talking about the 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 school dinner um, situations with the uh, kids, uh, and we're like, well, you know, it's only lunch. It doesn't matter if you don't have that. I was like, these kids aren't. That's the only meal they're getting. You know what I mean, yeah. she can't see that. <laughs> they're not getting breakfast or dinner either. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a yeah. There's just a lack of perception in life, and that's definitely what Axel has as well. Um, but also, I have to say, one of my favorite instances of Axel being late, um, even worse than him missing the uh, um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012, which uh, he, he was too late to. But Was he, was he like, being inducted and he missed it? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, God. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think he made it at the very end, but he, there's definitely a picture of him with the rest of the band. Um, but he definitely was very, very noticeably very late. Um, but the worst one in 1991, <laughs> he was he was like he's about three hours late to a show, right? Now, what do you think Axel's going to be doing this time? What do you think is so important of his time that he's? he's do, uh, what do you think he's doing? I don't know, torturing his neighbor or something. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. In fact, this is a bit of a curveball here. He said <laughs> he said he was too busy watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, which I think is the perfect reason to be late for a gig. Wow. That is so <laughs> insane. Oh my god. That's funny because when he talks about it in interviews, he makes it like he's such a perfectionist that if he's not in the right mindset, that's why he's late. But it's like, no, that's not it. It's just because you don't care about other people's time. Well, I, I kind of think he just just has tantrums a lot. I think he, uh, uh, I think um, one time he, um, it's not just gigs; it's also recording days. Like uh, he uh, he signed with Geffen Records, and he uh, one day, I think for Chinese Democracy, he uh, misplaced his contact lenses, stormed out of his home, believing someone wanted because uh, 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 he wanted. Um, he couldn't read the contract properly. So he was like, oh, well, I'm just going to go home then. He's like, uh, and he just got drunk at a whiskey go-go. And it's like, well, that, that's probably not the most fitting use of your time, to be fair. But uh, yeah, it was, um, it, it's just, I think it's, 
he's a very short fuse. In Rolling Stone, in one of the interviews, they mention it was in the late 80s, so they still called it manic depressive. They said he was diagnosed manic depressive and that mm-hmm. he was taking lithium. And I thought that was really interesting because we don't, re- you didn't really hear about famous people's mental health stuff back mm-hmm. then, right? Absolutely. And um, I, I, yeah, and I guess it kind of, um, yeah, I, I, if he didn't have, this is what I meant earlier about like having not just a trauma from the past, but also if he's dealing with ups and downs in his day-to-day life, that's going to affect his, uh, how he's on stage, how he behaves. And that kind of, to be honest, that really, uh, I don't, I don't mean to, uh, tell of a massive brush here, but it makes a lot of sense of his behaviors and actions, you know, mm. like, and mad, I don't think it's, maybe he's such a live wire because it's, it's mental health issues. Like, Cause I think any, any person who wasn't dealing with bipolar for them to jump off stage and punch people and get them tricked out and then leave the show. I think that's, 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 that's very, very rare and very, very, uh, uh, that's not, you not very, very unlikely to happen. But if, if it's a bipolar, it, then, Again, it's not exactly not say every person bipolar does this, but it it, it makes more sense. It gives more credence why he might mm. be doing that, and it's less of a it's less of a um, it, yeah. It makes more sense, and I think it's more uh, it's, it's you can see why he might be doing that more. It also made me draw a lot of parallels in my head about the behavior parallels between him and Kanye West with some of Kanye the things that Kanye has said and everything. So that definitely made me look at him differently Mm -hmm. from like a more probably more sympathetic perspective just to know that he was like dealing with that and I think it's really cool that he has been open about that and he's been open about seeking treatment since Mm -hmm. the late 80s and no one else was talking about that for the longest time so I think there was probably a lot of like young guys who were reading every single interview with him and devouring it who kind of said oh maybe I can sort of figure this this stuff out for myself too yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's, it's hopefully that, um, yeah, I, I hope that people got the help they needed from Axl Rose being open in that way. But um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, and yeah, and hopefully that people don't see, ho- hopefully people see that his, uh, Axl for his, his uh, positive aspects and his negative aspects and are able to filter between the two. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I worry that some people listen to appetite destruction and love it for the wrong reasons and this is this isn't exactly the most positive note in the world but i uh as i mentioned the soul guns and roses live at download in 2018 i went for the full weekend so on the friday night was avenged sevenfold headlining saturday night guns and roses and then sunday night was ozzy Osbourne. and uh during the festival there's always there's always date tickets so um like uh, the vibe of the festival changes ever so slightly during the headlines because that's what pretty much one reason why people come the day tickets come in and they act differently from the whole festival the rest of the festival is like this giant community we're all there we're out there every year but the day ticketers come in and they and the thing is with guns and roses fans and this is the first time i saw it at a gig when i was old enough to know uh to know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable is that I saw I saw there were people there was, there was um, a girl on someone's shoulders and I saw a group of like men just start groping her and <gasps> I was yeah like and that's and no one else batted an eyelid but I had to go and say pack it in and stop it and uh, and like, I had to like I made sure she was okay but it was like like it made me so angry oh my god that must have been scary it was but I was also 
I, but I also didn't want to step step by and not do anything. If you know yeah. what I mean, because like I hate confrontation. I don't like. I'm not a fighter, but also that's there's a. I think it's arguable that say that Guns and Roses attract that kind of mentality. I don't. Hopefully, it isn't a boys' club, and I'm sure not all not everyone who listens to it, like myself, is part of that boys' club. But also, it's kind of like it's weird that for the one day that happened it was guns and roses uh, and it was a saturday night so you might have just had people just being more drunk or larry than yeah. usual but it it kind of it's yeah it's it it's a coincidence which i'm actually i don't think it's a coincidence that's what i'm trying to say well if it makes you feel better and if it makes the guns and roses fandom feel better i when i was younger going to warp tour and stuff i would get groped all the time yeah <laughs> and that's <laughs> And I didn't even know that it was that I was allowed to be mad about it at the time. Like yeah. in the last like probably 10, 15 years was when I started to realize like, oh, just because you're at a music festival doesn't mean people can grope you. Yeah. And I- I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Like uh, it's nothing, I- I've never done anything like that in my life and nor would I, uh, I'm thankfully so. But in my head, when I first went to, to um, festivals, there was a mindset in my head that, oh, since I'm at a festival, a teenage boy, and bear in mind, I've never been kissed at this point. I was like, I, see, I assumed that girls would want to get off of me. And I don't know where it came from, but in my head, it it, it wasn't a good thing to grope people, but it was like, it wasn't condemned. You know what I mean? There was like, yeah. a, there's a lad mentality there. Again, I never did it. And I absolutely condemn people who do, but I'm saying there is a, I acknowledge there was a filter down process where people have, like done that yeah you know i mean like or seen people do it and uh, and yeah i'm not sure where that comes from but there is yeah there's definitely a misogyny and uh in rock music but however i do think it's improving and definitely. maybe there's and particularly with modern punk as i, as I mentioned earlier uh, one of my favorite artists is someone called jeff rosenstock um and in his live album and with many many punk musicians these days they um uh jeff starts off his shows by um he does a song then second before the second song he's very much like all right just to clarify uh, in here sometimes people think uh it's okay to grope people and uh it's absolutely not and uh he, what he does he goes if you're at risk or you feel like you might be in danger just taps um uh, I want you to give a cheer if you are there to be support people. And the whole room cheers. Everyone's like, uh, and it goes, that's the people who will support you. Just tap someone on the shoulder and can sort you out wow. and get that, get that person out of there. And it's really empowering because it's kind of like, yeah, because punk's meant to be for everyone. It's meant to be for all that. And people are highlighting it as well. And I think listening to that really, it, it makes me feel good because it feels like it's going in the right direction it feels like i feel validated in that way as well i feel like yeah it's, it's a good thing you know it's, yeah. it's and not it's and the sad thing is that a lot of people are surprised when i say that because it should happen anyway but yeah i mean it's a uh, but i'm glad that people are actively calling it out as well and this is on the live album as well like he uh and so he's yeah it's it really uh yeah it and i think that's really important yeah, definitely. Something else crazy is how much money they made. In the first four mm-hmm. years, They their first four years as a band, they made $52 million, which is that's just insane. completely unheard of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, as you say, that's the reason why Axel probably has that autonomy because he's like, well, I don't need to do this. I'm brilliant as it is. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely yeah. bang on right there. But he... so. He he has said, which surprised me, that Bohemian Rhapsody, it, or not, sorry, Queen is his favorite band, he said. Mm-hmm. And he 
worships Freddie Mercury. And it's really interesting because I would never have put that together ever. I would never think that that was his golden sta- gold standard. But I guess when you look at the way that he behaved in the band, it sort of did seem like he considered himself to be the leader. But did the other guys consider him to be the leader or were they all just more interested in being equals? Well, again, I, I think it's it's a hard one to um, to determine because I think, um, especially before Appetite for Destruction, I remember I remember the band manager talking about different members of the band, and uh, I remember a quote from the band manager about Slash saying um, Slash was too drunk or too uh, too intoxicated uh, and, and too lacking of management in the band that he couldn't even run a bath that was the that was a joke he said he can't, uh, he couldn't even run a bath uh, but and um but and i yeah so i kind of feel that a lot of them were just kind of there for for different reasons you know what i mean and i feel axel probably took a, a lead i think axel because of his personality probably t- uh, again this is purely special speculative but i think he probably would have taken more of a charge in that do you know I mean? and he took a charge with a lot of the things and that uh but yeah a lot of other people started um yeah i, I don't think they were necessarily being equals i think they were all just kind of uh just kind of going from day to day if you know what i mean they, they were yeah. very very high very drunk and very uh uh eventful i would say yeah apparently he actually didn't do that much substance abuse according to a couple of the things I read, like they had this image obviously because of Slash and because of Duff McKagan, but apparently Axel wasn't really doing much, which is interesting because it's similar to Mick Jagger. Like he never really did drugs either, even though the rest of them were doing like everything. But I actually interviewed Duff McKagan once and I completely, yeah, I forgot that I did that. And I was doing research for this and I saw his name and I was like, wait, I interviewed that guy. So I talked to him a few years ago and he told me this story because I was like, you have to tell me at least one crazy story uh, from the road and from your days in Guns N' Roses. And he told me about this time when uh, recently he met Elton John at a concert or something. And he was like, hi, I'm Duff. And Elton John was like, no, we've met before. And he was like, what do you mean? And Elton John told him that when Guns N' Roses played at Wembley Stadium, Duff McKagan was so drunk and messed up that he was falling all over the place backstage. Elton John was the only person near him and he like picked him up and like hoisted him onto the stage and he was like, dude, you have to perform, like get on the stage. So Duff got on and he did all of his songs perfectly. And then as soon as he was done, he just fell off the stage again and Elton John like brought him to his room. And he was like, oh my God, I have no recollection of that whatsoever. (laughs) Oh my god! And you know what? Like my my inner fanboy is cheered very loudly. Like, oh my god, you met the Kagan. Oh my god! Like I felt, uh, oh god. Uh, could, could you? Could you? I know you're a journalist, and uh, it probably breached your professionalism. But could you send a message from me, just saying I love you? Yeah, that's, that's all you have to say. Okay, that's all you have to say. <laughs> I don't Thanks. think I have his email address. He was so cool, though. He was one of the coolest celebrities that I've interviewed for sure. Just so cool. So approachable. And the whole interview, he talked all about his daughter's band and about all of the young musicians that he's into. It was really cool because he didn't dwell on the past at all. Mm -hmm. He was like, here's who I'm into. He's a huge fan of Charlie XCX, which I loved. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he was awesome. And I actually remember seeing Duff uh, perform with his band Loaded at download and uh a long long time ago but it was uh yeah i I actually think we talked about redemptive arcs earlier and i think duff 
uh, Duff and Slash both had theirs. Yeah, mm. I mean, because I, I think they were both really young and uh, uh, were doing their thing, but they both went on to do really, really wonderful things, particularly Slash. I think Slash has uh, really gotten uh, his act together. And like from 2010 onwards, he has done phenomenal music. And he's putting out albums. He's working with Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators. And it is, is really great music. And I think uh, he needed that to kind of have it back in his, uh, his um he, to get his groove back and I think it uh, yeah they're both I think they all had that uh, and uh, yeah they all had their own kind of uh, arcs and stuff like that and uh, and obviously with Velvet Revolver Slash did really well from that as well and there was uh, but I think Slash needed that thing for himself I think he needed that thing for himself to do that yeah definitely it's interesting how it seems like you have to hit when you're in your early 20s or else you're just never gonna hit and then even if you keep making music for the rest of your life it's probably never gonna hit like that did why do you think that is you know what it's a really interesting question and i think um i've been looking at a lot of bands recently doing research and um particularly with gla- uh, <clears throat> excuse me particularly with a lot of 80s metal bands and also uh, the, the trend happens with indie bands in the, in the 2000s so that there's one amazing album a second album which is pretty good and they're off the radar forever it's um it's i call it, when i was a teenager i call it indie band syndrome and they basically two two albums are now and uh, it's um i'm not sure maybe people lose interest there's there's also an oversaturation as well. So people are kind of move on to new things uh, and a lot of things uh, kind of go through a fad. And uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what, what it is. Um, and maybe it's just the music industry. Maybe it's people just turning their backs on it. We don't get to see the the inner machinations of how it all works. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I guess, kind of um, the... The, the time and place is right and then they kind of they, they kind of go their own separate ways but I don't know I think there's also a magic with a first album I think the debut album for anyone is always really special it has that it, I feel that I don't know I, um, this is me just thinking from all my research I kind of think that with a first album uh, first and second album I feel that the first album has none of no one messing around with it and i think once as soon as you get more uh a and r and uh, record labels messing around with it I, i'm i'm a hardcore punk by the way i love people like jeff rosenstock and uh, ajj uh people who like modern punk is really awesome because they just do it in the bedrooms and it's wonderful uh and but they, i think the less people messing around with it that it's more like just it's more the authentic sound it's not meant to be more marketable it's not meant to be it's not overthought it's kind of, and, and that's the issue which Axel had with Chinese democracy. It, it was too overthought. Uh, and um, in case anyone doesn't know what Chinese democracy is, it was a, an album which Axel worked on for 12 years. He, he, re, he recorded it and re-recorded it 15 times and it was an absolute car crash. Uh, well, initially it came out as a car crash. It wasn't as bad as everyone made out, but it was not good. It wasn't good in any particular way. And it was a... Uh, yeah, a lot of controversy came from that album as well. But yeah, just uh, so yeah, I, I feel that with a to answer your question, the first album is always um, it it has less uh, less people. It, it's more the most authentic band you can ever be. I also find with comedy as well. Like uh, I think Brendan Burns once said it in an interview with Richard Herring, saying that the first time you do a gig is actually the most authentic you are ever. I'm not sure oh, if I necessarily God. not yeah. me. Yeah, I know. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I kind of feel that there's an element there where you're 
I don't know. I kind of feel like with, um, it, yeah, and maybe there's less inhibitions when you try it for the first time. I don't know. I, but yeah, I, I think I am more myself now than I was back then. But I don't I, know. Yeah. I think I had more inhibitions when I first started. Do you know what I think it might be? with? Because I'm as you're saying all this, I was thinking about, you know, people who have been good over the course of many, many albums. And mm-hmm. I would say like the Beatles would fall into that. The Beach yeah. Boys until things went off the rails, the Rolling mm-hmm. Stones for most of their career. And that, like you said, was a time when the music industry was less oversaturated. So there mm-hmm. was less of a thing where everyone's striving to get to the top. And also solo artists a lot of the time have more luck over the course of like 10, 20 years. So mm-hmm. maybe it's because today with bands probably from like the mid 80s onward you have to be so much better to even get noticed and you have to like trim the fat for so long until you even get to that debut album like Mm -hmm. you know how it is with comedy every time you listen to a spot that you've done you're trimming the fat you're trimming what didn't work and then Mm -hmm. if you have to do the same thing without the same amount of time to prepare, it's not going to be as good. So maybe also I think with bands, they start to hate each other after a while because yeah. mm-hmm. I think fame probably changes everyone. How could it not? And then after the first one or two albums, they're just like, oh my God, I got to get away from these guys. And uh, particularly with the Beatles as well, like um, uh, they they kind of, they they did so many albums in the space of like 10 years or like seven years. And like they were, they were doing like, nearly two a year essentially and it was really rapid and uh so they kind of canned that magic right there but also yeah as you say like i think people if you're working to with that person so long and you all have different ideas how you want to get stuff across it's uh it's going to be difficult as well like particularly with guns and roses i think that they all had kind of different directions as well Mm. and uh and they definitely had different ways of doing things as well also they were sort of the last gasp of hair metal they weren't hair metal but they were reminiscent of it and they were sort of an offshoot of that genre right Mm -hmm. i would say and i read this really interesting thing in one of the rolling stone stories about them and it said it was over for guns and roses as soon as nirvana released nevermind in the Mm -hmm. autumn of 1991 so that was obviously a culture shift the minute that nirvana hit the scene it was like you know, and, and it said this was revenge for Kurt Cobain, who had been viciously running down Axel at Nirvana gigs. And Kurt Cobain said, we come from small towns. This is really interesting because it's about toxic masculinity. He said, we come from small towns and we've been surrounded by a lot of sexism and racism, but our internal struggles are pretty different. I feel like I've allowed myself to open my mind a lot more to a lot more things than he has. His role has been played for years. Ever since the beginning of rock and roll, there's been an Axel Rose and it's just totally boring to me. Which, like, yeah. talk about diva. That is, like, world-class diva shade from Kurt Cobain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, like, they, I think Kurt Cobain and Axel have had a lot of uh, uh, collisions in their time. Uh, um, and you're absolutely right. Um, just to uh, sum up that, um, what you were saying as well, like, uh, I've been doing research for other th- uh, about, about that time period for hair metal, uh, coincidentally. And, uh, and yeah, oh. so um, Guns N' Roses, as you say, hit, uh, got that, a couple of albums in but as soon as uh uh nevermind uh, came along uh they it, yeah it, it kind of was a massive grunge explosion and like people like skid row for example who are not a massive hair metal band uh well they they prefer glam metal because hair metal is used as a derogative term um not it's not a massive derogative term but yeah it's a uh, but um yeah they, they they had to push all their albums back about five ten years just so that people might try it so they, they tried to hope for resurgence in it wow. but yeah 
grunge took over and it was uh yeah bands like uh um like Soundgarden and uh, Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains, kind of they kind of dominate the scenes as, as well as Nirvana as well. Um, but yeah, and yeah, um, Guns N' Roses asked Nirvana to support them on tour, uh, and they they just said no thanks because uh, yeah, yeah, quite homophobic, uh, and which I think is a uh, uh, really awesome from Kurt Cobain. But also, yeah, uh, like, who was doing that back? What like straight man who wanted to be famous was sticking up for gay people back in the late eighties, early nineties? Like that really is amazing that Kurt Cobain did that. Uh, yeah, and I think that's uh, that's I think that's. Uh, uh, it was nice as well, and uh, I I also did research. Uh, uh, well, there's also another story to do with Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, and I'm not quite sure how it came about. But uh, Courtney Love asked Rose uh, if he'd like to be Francis Bean. Yeah, so Axel Love asked Rose if he'd like to be Francis Bean's godfather. Axel told Kurt to tell his um, B word to shut up and uh, challenge Kurt to a fight. <laughs> Jesus. Like, but his his reaction for about I'm gonna say 15 years was say something to me and I'll fight you. That's essentially what it was, and it Insane. would be to anyone. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And in fact, uh, he hated. Uh, obviously, later on in his career, he was doing Guns N' Roses, which was just himself and lots of random people on stage. Um, I, I actually saw him in Leeds 2010 or 11 headlining. And uh, yeah, and with, with this kind of uh, weird Chinese democracy band as well. It was uh, very... Um, yeah, but, the guy with the KFC bucket on his head? Yes, Buckethead. Uh, Buckethead, so, uh, yeah. Uh, but actually, Buckethead wasn't there. He actually got fired from the band at that point. And, uh, oh. yeah, uh, Buckethead uh, used to have chicken coops in the uh, Chinese Democracy Studios as well, amongst other things as well. And inside the chicken coops, he would be streaming um, pornography, quite disturbing pornography for 24 hours a day. That's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that went on to that album. Um, so, yeah, wow. it's... Uh, th- but all of these are very weird and they're always i think they all stem from the same place you know what i mean it all it's it's a fantasy the way that they live their lives and maybe you know they're saying that they it is a fantasy don't believe in it but that's also their lives that they are living this weird um weird kind of uh rock fantasy and i think it's uh yeah it's it's very different from uh, I guess what idol uh, uh, with Axel. I think what you said earlier about Queen about how Axel loved Queen. I think in his head he thinks if he spends time as much time and money on the album, it'll make it good. But he he also lost a lot of the soul there as well. I think that's really really important. Yeah, that's the thing with music and being a musician. Obviously, I'm not a musician, so I don't know that much about it. But it seems if you're if you don't hit with your genre and your skill set at the exact right time in music history, you're going to be either nobody or if you hit at the right time, you're going to be enormous. So it's like, if you did hit the way that Guns N' Roses hit, and then you stop hitting, it's kind of like, what do you do? Like, do you do you go into a new genre? Do you reinvent yourself or do you try to keep doing the same thing, but bigger? And yeah, I just can't imagine the stress of having to live up to that kind of past success, I guess. It's so hard being a stand-up comedian. Like, cause I, so many people are asking me, Matt, when's your next show? I was like, Oh, I can't do it right now. Thank <laughs> you very much. It's very, very, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, up to five people have asked me uh, in the last year. So, you know what I mean? So it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty, it's going well for me, Molly. Um, but uh, do you reckon um, after this uh, podcast, do you reckon I should start to try and get 
you know, it's been a hard year for many of all comedians in, in the last year. Uh, do you reckon I should start living a bit like Axl Rose to try and be a bit more? Should you reckon that'll get my career on track? Do you reckon that? Right, be like just be as crazy as possible. <laughs> I mean, who knows? I, I'll be honest, I don't think it really fits in my, uh, my wheelhouse. I think I'm too nice to be Axl Rose. <laughs> But uh, who knows? I might trick a, a wine bottle at someone and uh, hope for the best. So uh. Yeah, I think he was just like a live wire. He was like an exposed nerve. That's what it seems like when you read about the way that he was and the things that all of his ex-girlfriends have said about him, which he is going on to my list, which I have a, I have a list of male creatives who were supported by a woman earlier <laughs> in their careers and were never called out for it or called a gold digger. <laughs> Mm-hmm. yeah uh, <laughs> there are yeah, so many like Axel yeah. rose and kurt cobain have that in common they both mm-hmm. had a hometown girlfriend who was working a crappy part-time job and supporting them while they figured out how to be a musician and then when they got famous they like never spoke to them again yeah that that's such a common thing yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah the fact the way that you just mentioned that I, it's brought so many examples to my mind but yeah <laughs> yeah it's uh, yeah yeah, absolutely happens. Yeah. And yeah, it's uh, a big thing in music. But he had a really like great, interesting dating history. He had that hometown girlfriend. He had Erin Everly, who was in the Sweet Child of Mine video, who sued mm-hmm. him. And he had Stephanie Seymour, which I had no idea. I know who Stephanie Seymour is because I used to, one of my previous jobs was at the New York Observer and we wrote a lot about like New York society and she now is married to a billionaire and she has these sons with him named Peter Brandt and Harry Brandt and they're these dandies who dress really flamboyantly they kind of were controversial because there was um a photo shoot that went viral of Stephanie Seymour and her son like kissing and him touching her boob and then he came out and he was like I'm gay don't worry like that was just a photo shoot and it's just like okay yeah and she was a supermodel in the late 80s early 90s but I've got to delete some pictures of me and my mom. Sorry. No, like crazy. (laughs) Sorry, just joking. Uh, But so she, yeah, so he dated her and I had no idea. And they were, they had a really serious relationship. And they said in a lot of these stories about him Mm -hmm. that part of the reason why he went into Howard Hughes mode and sort of locked himself up for 10 years was because of the relationship with Stephanie not working out. He, she, he considered her his ideal woman. I mean, this is obviously also an excuse to like blame a woman for your problems. But he said she was an ideal woman and he was very upset that they broke up and that she married this billionaire. And like, that was part of the reason why he never wanted to come outside again. From this conversation, I I kind of think that Axl Rose is like the real life Bojack Horseman. Do you know what I mean? We kind of want him to be good, but he also keeps on messing up from himself consistently. Do you know what I mean? Like- uh, It really uh, does. Yeah. I kind of, I really want Axl to- to kind of have his, I want him to have his heyday. I want him to kind of have that arc. Was like, you know what? Yeah, it's kind of like he's gone full circle. Well, not not full circle. Uh, not, definitely not full circle. In fact, just uh, a straight line, please. But yeah, like, we uh, want <laughs> upward trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what else I was thinking about him? He is obviously a consummate rock star because of all of these things we've talked about, you know, the being late for shows, being sort of toxic masculinity and all this stuff. But I also feel like if rock wasn't his genre, he's kind of just a showman in general. Like if he tried pop or if he even was like the first Vanilla Ice, he probably mm. also would have succeeded. I feel like he's, right? Yeah, because yeah, I kind of, 
in a weird way, I think he is charming. Do you know what I mean? Like, like well, is that right? No. Is he charming? No. He's definitely, he, as you said, he's a live wire. And I think that if you, if you tap that in the right way, I think you can have a really good pop star or you could have a, you know, you could have, I think he's creative. He's, he's definitely, he's got a talent. He has talent. And I just Charisma. think that, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, you know what? I think you're right. He has charisma, but I don't think he's charming. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think yeah. there's a very nuance there. You know what I mean? And I think uh, he has the ability to write amazing and wonderful songs, particularly on Use Your Illusion. Like, the, the more power ballad songs are really phenomenal and touching and wonderful. Mm. And yeah, it's all, it, that album, um, well, the highlights of that album really show what kind of uh, wonderful, uh, music Guns N' Roses can make and particularly like like it's hard to describe but I think the reason why I love Guns N' Roses is that for particularly with Appetite for Destruction for the 11 and a half tracks is that the whole band basically like, were getting drunk and uh, doing uh, like kind of just like a uh, very disturbing acts and uh, you know having uh, inappropriate relationships uh, with uh, people uh, and kind of discarding them and treating them in a really bad way but at the, so that's that's for the full album. But then for the very at the very end at the Rocket Queen, there's the whole uh, after the bridge and the solo. There's a snap, and what happens? And there's actually a sliver that the rest of the song is basically like, you know what? Like it doesn't matter if we're not going to be here together. I'll always be there for you. I'll always be a friend. And from a whole album of toxic masculinity, there's a like, there's a bit at the end that goes, you know what? At the end, I'll, I'll it doesn't matter about the rest of that. I'm there for you as a friend. You know what I mean? I think and, and there's that's why I think there's redemption there. Because, like, even through all the other um, stuff there, there is that sliver of humanity. And I think, mm. that's, I think that's still there. And the heat's growing. It's growing. That is a great note to end on, I would say. I think yeah. the, the thing we forget a lot of the time about people who are full of rage is it's often an outgrowth of sensitivity, and mm-hmm. I think that's the case with him. I think he's just like so wounded. And I know I hated on this and hated on him for this in the beginning of always playing a victim, but you know, that's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sure. Matt, tell us a little bit about your podcast before we wrap it up. Yes. Uh, well, I, I do. Um, my main podcast is called Castable. It's where I get uh, famous people to pitch their dream music festival. It's uh, uh, We're uh, doing the third series very soon. So please go and check it out. It's available on, on Apple and Spotify. And basically, if you like, uh, if you like a little bit of comedy, but also um, a deep dive into some music as well, it's not a snob podcast so if you like music but you don't know that much about it don't worry about it it's all there for fun as well so it's a yeah it's a it's been a it's been a really fun project which i've really loved and uh yeah we should have you on soon molly It'd be great to oh have i you. would love to is guns and roses in your music festival dream music festival it's it's hard because i am um, it's it's hard to pitch because i've actually seen guns and roses live and i think that was perfect for me i'm not sure it, if I was to see him again, I'm not. I'm not sure if they would be in my lineup because I would like to see people I haven't seen before. Mm. But if it's people I have seen, they 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 were pretty good Saturday night headliners. So uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty wonderful. So uh, yeah, um, but you know, in my in Castable, we have a set of rules, and well, the rules are there aren't really any rules, so you can have stipulations on people. So for example, one of the ideas of the fest, uh, like for example, you could have um, you could have 
the Smiths, but Morrissey has to not be a racist. That's the kind of, that's the stipulations <laughs> you could have. You know what I mean? Like, so I think my stipulation would be that Guns N' Roses original lineup, but everyone's a top lad. You know, I mean? everyone's really nice. They they kind of right all the wrongs. They say, hey. Uh, it, they they burn one in a million on stage. I don't know how you burn a song, but they do it, and uh, and uh, that's what happens. Uh, and it's all nice, and everyone hugs each other at the end. That's that's what I want. That sounds beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for coming on Diva Behavior. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Some people think Diva is a diva to you. Would you say are you one? I never said that. Diva Behavior. Hey, great uh, great gowns, beautiful gowns. Diva Behavior, the podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.